This podcast is supported by Comcast Business. You're in tech in 2024. Of course you're busy. Whether it's staying on top of potential cyber threats or keeping up with what's trending in tech, you need to know your network is covered. You need a partner you can rely on. You need one provider with fully integrated network and security solutions. You need Comcast Business for managed services and tailored solutions that are built to keep your business going. Powering the CIOs that make it happen. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. On the average year, about 50,000 American restaurants shutter their doors. That number was almost doubled this past year, despite the help of food delivery apps during the pandemic. Or some would say that number was exacerbated by their high fees. Since March 2020, the industry lost about $290 billion, and it's still down 1.5 million jobs compared to pre-pandemic levels. At the same time, there's a nationwide labor shortage. So is the restaurant industry as we knew it gone forever? If so, perhaps the first person who would know about it is a guy who spends most of his days in kitchens across America. A guy who's mayor of Flavortown. A guy named Guy Fieri. Welcome to Sway Guy. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it. Anyway, so about 90,000 restaurants and bars temporarily or permanently closed last year. Drive-ins uh, probably did okay, but you probably wouldn't say the same about diners and dives, for example. By the way, one of my favorite shows on. Um, so what do you think the category of restaurants was hit hardest? Because you've been all over the country visiting, especially small entrepreneurs who are trying to keep afloat. I, I think that people want it to be an answer like uh, high end or something really definitive. There's no way to tell the makeup of a restaurant. You don't know who owns it. You don't know how much they owe on it. You don't know who really runs it. You don't know their profit margins. I mean, it's there's just so many different facets to the industry that it's really not something that is very predictable. And even myself, who's been in the restaurant industry my whole life, when there were restaurants that were closing, I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. What happened? Or how did that place keep going, you know, considering their reputation or their business model or whatever? There's just too many facets, right? But I think that the restaurants that pivoted, I think the restaurants that maybe had some help, maybe had some support, landlords were giving them some love, had deeper pockets, maybe had a little more savings. Who knows what these scenarios are? But um, I did think that the mom and pop joints, maybe because the labor pool was typically them, or they didn't have as much uh, rigid structure to them as to what they could and could not do. I don't know, but it's it was definitely anybody's game of who made it and who didn't. Mm -hmm. The margins are already so slim for restaurants before the pandemic. Most operate on something, what is it, 3 to 5% margins. What is it about the industry that leads to those conditions? I've made this comparison, parody comment forever. For some reason, attorneys all ramp their numbers up. You know, like they almost compete, like who's got a higher number? But in the restaurant business, unfortunately, that championing or that supporting doesn't get, it, it, I don't know, it's it's going to change now. I mean, we're going to see that it's changing because people are realizing they can't even get, they can't even hire people. Yeah. I drove from Knoxville this weekend and every single fast food restaurant said $10 an hour. This was deep in Virginia, deep in areas that were not paying those amounts. Ever before. I hope the business works together and we make the margins uh, reasonable 
but it's for some reason always been that way. And, and the thing is, is we need support from legislation. Yeah, talk about it. One way the government has tried to help is the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. It's a federal grant program that was authorized in the sixth COVID relief bill. It allocated $28.6 billion and was the first time restaurants were singled out for aid in a federal COVID relief bill. Meanwhile, the airline industry, for example, got direct aid very early on in March of last year. Why do you think it took longer to get direct aid to restaurants? I don't, I mean, now I, I have to get, I have to bite my tongue a little bit. Because no, I'll don't, get, please, uh, no, unbite no, I'll, it. I'll get, it's I'm, not delicious. I, I mean, I'm pissed. It's because there's not enough unification. We all love each other in the restaurant business. We're all chefs together and so forth. But airlines have big, powerful money and attorneys and lobbyists. And we've got home-built restaurant companies that were passed down from, or restaurants that are passed down from generations with not as much energy and power and unification, the only advocacies we really have working for us are our state uh, associations like California Restaurant Association and National Restaurant Association. And not everybody sees the benefit of saying, hey, I would like to pay my dues and I would like to participate in this because I see what that can do to support my entire industry. And I think it has to do with anything we see in government and politics and so forth. It's loud voice, power and money. Yeah, the Restaurant Revitalization Fund received, though, 372,000 applications seeking $76 billion in total has already run out of money. What do they have to do next? And how do you think they were rolled out? Does there need to be more money for this? Or And it's very hard to get anything through Congress. They can't agree on lunch, so to speak. How about everybody that's in legislation that loves to go to restaurants? How about you just ask your local restaurant what you could do to help them stay afloat? Because if you don't, you're going to start to feel. You think you're feeling it now? It's only going to get worse. Right, exactly. So you realize the impact of the pandemic very early on and in March 2020 created the Restaurant Employee Relief Fund with the National Restaurant Association. And uh, you got a lot of money from various corporations. And uh, you didn't want to name names, but no thanks to Jeff Bezos, who didn't chip in. So he named a name. He's a very wealthy name. Um, is he giving you money since? Well, we did raise $25 million, And that's what's so important is uh, the people that did step up. And I sent these videos out to these presidents and CEOs. And who knows if you had the right email address or the right contact kept to the right person. So I, that's why I made in the article, I said, I'm not into shaming people because you don't know. So why does it take you and others to do this? Do you think the government couldn't act or why do you, did you start this because you thought it would take too long for the government to act? Listen, I'm a huge patriot. I love our country. I'm so proud that we get to have what we have. I don't think everybody appreciates it to the level that we should appreciate it. But um, I sure wish we could react quicker. I don't know. I'm not on that side of it, so I'm not going to point fingers. I'm in, I, As opposed to sitting there running my mouth about it, I'm just going to go do something about it. So one of the groups that actually did rather well during the pandemic were tech companies, um, especially those with food delivery apps like Uber Eats, Grubhub, and DoorDash have been called lifelines for customers and restaurants during the pandemic. But the fees, which can be up to 30%, put additional strain on restaurant owners. Everybody knows this. I wonder if you have any ideas of what needs to be done in order for these apps to exist without running restaurants into the ground, or is that even possible? I hate regulations. I, I'm not a big fan of rules. I think that we, all of a sudden, government jumps in and makes certain groups can't work together and all this kind of stuff. Boy, it sure would be nice if someone could come together and say, let's just put some parameters on this, you know, of what can and can't work. And you guys are already doing really good. And, you know, restaurants don't have a choice. You know, maybe, I, I don't know. But now it would be awesome if somebody, some gigantic philanthropist could say, hey, you know what? Here's what I'll do. 
I'll make it so we're a nonprofit delivery company and we'll make sure drivers make money and restaurants make money. And here you go, I'll put it together and it's going to cost me, you know, 50 million to make this thing work, but I'm going to save the restaurant businesses that don't have a building. Have you reached out to any lawmakers or philanthropists <laughs> about this? I mean, Kara, this is, this is just coming up because you started poking the bear. You started, <laughs> you started getting, don't get me riled up on this shit. I'm, I'm going to get you like, riled up. They do, they can charge you whatever they want and then give you, you know, some no, PR money. That's, I'm just telling you. No, it's true. It's true. So what would you say to a lawmaker? What would you say? 30% seems like a lot. And they have no choice. They have no choice. They don't have the technology. I'd say you put regulations on everybody for everything. And forever, it's been impossible, especially in certain states, certain counties, impossible to get liquor delivered. When this all happened and this, things are blowing up and people are sinking, all of a sudden people started figuring out, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. We can lighten up. Oh, we can do this. Wait. How did that shit get, how did that get done so quickly without anybody really having to go bang on doors about it. You know what it was? A bunch of legislators, a bunch of people that were in power saying, wait a second, we do see that the restaurants are suffering. We do see that this need is there. We do see that we'd like to have that delivery made to our own house. Who knows what it was? But if we have the ability to move that quickly, let's continue. Take a second, please, and look at this group of people that are far more important than just putting food in your mouth. They're part of the social engagement of your community. They're part of the training grounds for your kids. They're part of the retirement for older folks and single parents. I mean, this isn't just about food, you know. All right, one trend that the pandemic certainly increases ghost kitchens. Those kitchens that only make food for delivery, they aren't linked to a specific dine-in location, but they show up like a regular restaurant option on apps. You started a chain of ghost kitchens yourself. Why did you decide to do that? I know the restaurant is still open and I know the restaurant only has outdoor seating. They got rent. They got a family to feed. They have team members that want to work and they're serving a certain type of food. So if we could create a concept inside of that restaurant that doesn't compete with the restaurant, but allows them to make profit off of the food that we're selling and it can be through an app to a computer that prints out, makes them a thing, and it, it becomes seamless, just as if a server had punched it in on a computer inside of the restaurant. And then they can package it to go, and it can go out the back door with any one of the delivery services. At least we're putting some water through the pond. We're, we're putting some money on the table. Maybe not be the best margins that it was back in the day. But as long as it's not competing against. now, And I did hear some people say, well, there's other restaurants that may be serving your type of food in that area, and, and that could be a case. Yes, but that goes back to the old philosophy in the restaurant business when people would say, well, you open a restaurant and we're next door to each other, so we're competition. Now, we're not competition. Now, what we are is we're in the industry together. You do a great job, I'm going to do a great job. At least that's my perspective. Do you think ghost kitchens are here to stay? I think they're here. They, ghost kitchens, just so we're, we're clear, have been going on way before the pandemic. Because there's types of food that people want that they're not able to get a storefront for. I mean, you can't open a restaurant based off of one type of item to say like, um, just Philly cheesesteaks. Don't get me wrong. I love Philly cheesesteaks. But if someone can do Philly cheesesteaks and they can do it really well, they can do it out of this part of the kitchen and they can also have themselves a really great barbecue concept over here, then um, yeah, I think there's going to be that because I think that uh, overhead's a crusher, uh, fixed costs are crusher. And I think that people have now become so accustomed to this idea that Hey, eating at home's cool, you know? I mean, here I am, a guy that you'd think would have a pretty good insight on some of this stuff. I've never done that, you know? I've learned how to do it. 
So we, but I was mentioned, restaurants and bars are struggling to staff up to reopen fully. The industry has 1.7 million fewer jobs than before the pandemic, which is an astonishing number, despite the plenty of new opportunities. Conventional wisdom might lead me to believe that people would be excited to get back to these jobs after such a tough year. So what's going on? Why aren't people taking those jobs? Why are there all those signs for every restaurant I go to? We're short-staffed. It'll take longer. We don't have people. Um, it's really difficult to get your kids to eat a really healthy dinner and come to the dinner table hungry when they've been having snacks during the day. Mm -hmm. So if you take that analogy, not even that analogy, you take that reality and you say that we're doing a lot of things to help people, which I think is awesome. And I, I am so appreciate it, but at some point in time, we got to pivot and we can't, and we got to get people back to work. Right. But why don't they want to get back to work? Why are they having... Why would you go and eat broccoli if you just got to eat Doritos? Right. I see. Okay. Workers, you mean. You know, if you're not hungry, if you don't if you don't see the goal, if you don't see the real outcome of it, and don't get me wrong, restaurant industry is not easy work. You well, know? that's my point. I mean, the Republicans are saying they're relying on the unemployment uh, that they're getting. Um, I think they're just shitty jobs. Hours and pay in the industry can sometimes be grueling. A lot of workers are in unsafe conditions. But hang on a second. I, I want to back that up for a second. Restaurant business is awesome. Good friend of ours, their son works at In-N-Out. In-N-Out pays them good. They work hard. They have high values, high expectations. I tell this, you can make it in the restaurant business, you make it in any business. Because you got to learn to work with people. You got to learn communication skills. You got to be consistent. You have to present yourself. You have to deal with the public. The list goes on and on. So for me... No, you can't sit on your ass and expect that it's going to come to you because it's not. And what's going to end up happening is we're going to have this get teeter-totter. We're going to get real top-heavy over here with people that don't know how to work and don't want to work and then no more money to come. And then <gasps> here's the thing. We're not going to have the restaurants to get the job. If we don't get ahead of this and we don't fix this, we're going to come into a situation where everybody wants a job and you can't get a job. Let me push back on you. Look, Amazon gives $15 an hour, healthcare benefits, and everybody knows their schedule. Like, they hired a half a million people. People want to work. It's just this condition. I think that's awesome. For somebody, for some people, I think that's probably an awesome job because it's consistent. You go from this thing to this thing, and you do that. But I got to say that I think that the industry is... God, it's good and it's bad. There's good places to work and bad places to work. Sure. Why don't they push for increases in pay or unionization so they can have rising wages in the restaurant industry? The Restaurant Industry Associations have pushed back at these ideas. And naturally, I'm not surprised. Here is the thing we've been saying. You get bartenders, servers that are making their tips on top of their hourly, and that's awesome. And then you have people that are getting the same minimum wage that are working in the back of the house. And there's laws that say you can't make those tips split. You know, you can't say everybody's going to get the tip because it's a, you know, it, again, different states. I don't know. But I do know that we need to get it straight because we have back of the house team members or, or, or untipped team members that deserve higher wage. Trust me, I'm going to get some pissed people about my comment on this, but I got to be honest with you. It's got to change somewhere. So do all the prices go up? Do the taxes go down? Right now, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. So where do you stand on the minimum wage debate? It's, you know, you have some people thinking it should be 15, it's 7.25, and it's risen to the incredible amount since it was 7.25 to 7.25. That's 10 years. Meanwhile, all these very wealthy people have gotten wealthy by a factor of a lot. 
I think we're behind. I think we're behind on it. I think we're behind and by region, by areas. I can't say that every, I mean, you know, like for instance, living in any major city. What do you pay employees in your restaurants? Do you go with minimum wage? It depends on the place. You've got restaurants all over the world. Depends on, it depends on the region. It depends on the environment. It depends on situation. And I don't think there's a restaurateur that would tell you that they don't think that that minimum wage needs to go up. But the, what they can't do is they can't get the money out of their pockets that they don't have. Should workers be able to unionize, though? Because it's not just the restaurants that are part. It's the workers in the restaurant. Boy, you're you're up an alley. You're an up an alley for me that I don't <laughs> have. I don't, you don't I, have an I answer. I can't tell you because I've Because there's other the, things. There's yeah. other things. High-stress environments, sexual harassment, verbal abuse, lack of diversity at the top. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. We still talking about the restaurant business or the rest of the world? Yeah, the restaurant. Yeah, you because know, the restaurant. Because the rest. See, I love how all that comes down on the restaurant business because it's a people-oriented business. But I'm going to tell you what: there's bad people everywhere. There's bad people doing bad things to good people. I mean, that that shit drives me nuts. And I don't think I'm the one guy that's going to get that done. I think I'm just going to be one of the army that gets together to make this move forward. I'm going to say you're more than one guy, but but this is the industry you're in. I agree. It is a pervasive across venture capital, um, banking, et cetera, et cetera. But, it, but this is the industry you're in. And th- these issues are pervasive in it. Do you think the shortage and pressure from workers is going to finally change things? That they don't have enough workers. They have to face some of these issues that have been going on. You yourself have faced it at one of your restaurants, too employees at Guy Fieri's American Kitchen and Bar Live Casino in Greensburg, Pennsylvania have recently alleged racial discrimination and harassment, including unequal pay for black employees and a manager using a racial slur. This is across the entire industry that they have to face it. Do I think that because of the lack of workers, it's going to make restaurants? Yes, to some degree. But I'll tell you what, at my restaurants, if a situation ever comes up, we get involved and address it, you know, depending on where we are in that restaurant. And, and so there's different uh, levels of that. So what did, I'm curious, what did you do at your restaurant? That's a partnership that we had. And that was on a large level. That wasn't just to do with my restaurant. But of course, my name is exciting to put involved in it. Yes, your name is on everything. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the situation has been resolved. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, I don't have enough to tell you about it. But it's something you th- you th- think workers should be able to organize to deal with things like this. Listen, I don't think anybody should be held from doing anything. I think that if you've got a concern or you've got a problem and you've got a need, get it handled. However best you need to do that. If it, that means you going directly to your supervisor, you going directly to that supervisor's supervisor, or you loading up five people to come with you to go to the, the next supervisor, do what you got to do. Don't put up with shit. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Guy Fieri after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com starts. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. 
I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. So you've been on TV for a while now. I hope this isn't a surprise to you, but you come across as a larger-than-life personality on screen. I don't know if you've noticed <laughs> that. I think it's probably part of the reasons why there's so many guy uh, Fieri and Flavortown memes and why your brand is so lasting. Um, so how much of that is really you and how much is performance? You tell me. What you see on Triple D, is it how much in the percentage of who Guy Fieri is do you think you're getting? Probably a lot. Unless you're an excellent actor. I'm not an actor. I, I, don't, I don't have any idea Johnny about Carson being an actor. Johnny Carson was dark. He like, like they, no, 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 no. I'm such a, listen, I, this was a fluke. This whole thing was crazy. I didn't want to, I didn't know about the show. I'd never even watched, I haven't even watched TV. You know, I still don't really watch TV. I'm in the restaurant business. It's all I do is work. And then diners, drive-ins, and dives came. And once I realized what we were going to do and how we were going to highlight my brothers and sisters in the business, I'm not going to be a food critic. I'm not coming in to say I don't like something. That's not what's going to happen. Yeah, I hear you don't like food critics. Well, I mean, here's the thing. They all got to have a job, okay? They do their own thing. I'm referring to the Pete Wells review of your Times. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Hey, listen, at least, at least you got him some props, right? Yeah, it certainly did, yeah. You got you to find the sunshine and everything, you know? And I'm not happy-go-lucky about everything. Don't get me wrong. I can really have shitty days and be a jerk. I mean, anybody can. But my thing is um, I get to go around and highlight mom-and-pop joints in different parts of the country and share with people what they do really well. But um, no, nah, it's no act. And if I don't like it, you won't see it. Yeah, that's funny that you had the reaction at the Pete Wells piece. Are you beyond that review, by the way? I was beyond it after the day it came out, you know? What you? am I going to do, sit around? Listen, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got an ax to grind. Everybody wants to do something. Do I think that there's other motivations in people's lives when they do things? Uh, yeah, okay. All right, enough of that. Let's go into building the restaurant empire. That's what my goal has been. So restaurants, 173 ghost kitchens on every carnival cruise ship, uh, barbecue sauce, wine company, tequila company, you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't think you're doing badly since that review. It doesn't seem to have affected you in any way. So <laughs> you scored a three-year, $80 million contract extension with Food Network, which makes you the highest paid chef on cable television. And people on in the internet don't think you're getting paid enough, by the way. How did you land that deal? I really wish it hadn't come out. Really? And why it came out, I don't know. But it is what it is. I'm not embarrassed by it, by any means. I mean... Well, you shouldn't. You generate more than $230 million in 2020, Diner Stride. So I think you're underpaid. <laughs> you make a lot of content, Guy. Well, I make content, but I make impact. It's not... To me, content... Like, I, listen, when I do five more shows, they'd love to have five more shows. I won't do five more shows because I'm only going to do the things that I can really make a difference about. 
So the money was is great. Thank you. And I know that the state of California is just thrilled. So anyhow. Let me ask you, what's going to happen with now the Food Network, which is owned by Discovery? It's being run by David Zasloff. There's this merger with Warner Media and Discovery, if it goes through. What does that mean for you and the Food Network? Are you going to be suddenly appearing on Anderson Cooper? He's a great guy, by the way. Um, when Discovery took over Food Network, Zasloff comes to New York and he holds up his phone. This is three years ago, right? When he took, they took over. He holds up his phone and he goes, right here, you guys. This is where we're going. Media. And everybody's sitting around looking at this going, you know, some understood it, some didn't. But I look at where we're going and how we're going to do it on a worldwide level. And I think let's pour some more fuel on it. Let's let's get this thing going. Okay. Well, you know, there's a next generation of food stars on TikTok. Um, BuzzFeed had Tasty, as you remember, which had become a great hit. Do you imagine sort of the future of food media on there? I applaud it all. Bring it on. I mean, I'm follow, I'm on TikTok. I was giving my son Ryder a hard time about TikTok. I don't have a, a channel, a TikTok channel, but I'm subscribed. Would you like to do TikTok foods? Would you see yourself moving there, into that area? There may, it's, it's, you're very clairvoyant. There may be, so you never know. I don't think I'm clairvoyant. It just makes sense. Well, I'll tell you what. You should not be surprised if you eventually see a Guy Fieri TikTok. Okay. Maybe uh, it won't even be Guy Fieri. Maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be Flavortown. Flavortown. Oh, interesting. So that's a yes. So last question before you go, just so you know, I didn't tell you this, but my eldest son, Louis, is an excellent cook. He's in a, a butcher's assistant this summer. A lost art, by the way, Louis. And thank you. Thank you for doing that. He works for Pam the Butcher in Washington, very famous butcher here. He wants to be a chef and uh, he cooks beautifully. He cooks like an angel since he was eight years old uh, or seven years old. Um, so what advice would you have for him in the cooking industry? Where would you imagine a young chef working going forward? Well, it's kind of like you as an interviewer or as a writer um, or anybody that wants to aspire to an, an industry. Go work with somebody you admire. You may not have a fine dining restaurant. You may not be able to get a fine dining job, but there may be a pizza parlor that you go to where they keep the counters clean and the owner doesn't yell at the employees or uh, you had a problem with a pizza one time and he gave you a new slice. That's somebody that seems like they got their head on straight and maybe that's a good starter job for you. And then interview the person you're interviewing, that's interviewing you. Ask them questions. Don't just show up and then all of a sudden you're disappointed because you work every Saturday night. Maybe you should have asked, when am I going to work? You know, he works every Saturday night. He loves it. He loves it. Well, we do. That's what we listen. You don't do that. You're not in the restaurant business. if You don't work weekends you know, or holidays. My son travels to New Jersey to get one sandwich. Just trust He's me. He's a good man. I don't talk because I'm starving right now. Yeah, it's it's a deli there. It starts with an F. It's in Hackettstown or I don't know where he went. But see that he's got the bug. Mm -hmm. In any case, do yourself a favor. Have you been to the Marshall store for oysters? No. Where's the Marshall store? It's right near you. Well, it's so funny because people ask me all the time about going to eat in San Francisco. And I say, you know, I got to be really honest with you. When I come home, I'm literally the biggest homebody you've ever met. I don't eat out. I don't go anywhere. No, no. You want to go. You want to go. All right. I'm writing it down. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Hiba El Urbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. 
If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you wherever you may be in Flavortown, unless you're Pete Wells, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.